Welcome to Rebecca Sounds Reveille. As you know, I'm always excited about having a really good episode, and this is going to be another one. In fact, I have someone with me today who's an author, and since he's written a book, he's become a crisis coach. He started a treatment center. He has become the executive director of Safe Homes Coalition. He is unbelievable in the story that he has to share with us today. He's a change maker, and he is someone that not only brings change and can provide the change and give you the resources, but he believes it. He's genuine, he's passionate, and I can't wait for him to share more about the story that he has behind him and what he can do to help you change your life. So without any further ado, welcome Scott H. Silverman. So nice to be here. Thank you. What a great intro. I, I've got to get you to talk to my wife and let her hear all those wonderful things you just said. That was awesome. <laughs> well, you know, it is so true because you are amazing at all the things that you've been doing. And you do this because you're passionate about it. You have such a genuine heart and you've been doing this for a long time. You've dedicated your life, your finances, everything to putting into helping others. This is what I love to do as well. And I don't see it as much as I wish it was. And then I met you and I just learned so much about you and I want the audience to connect with you because of everything that you have now. But really, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, that person is this, but they don't understand where I've been. They don't know anything about this. They've just learned it through a textbook or they've watched some videos or maybe they took a course and that's it. But your life is different, and this is why you are so good at what you do. Will you share your story, and we can talk about then how we can help others? Oh, sure. I'd love to. And thank you very much for the opportunity. And, you know, you've actually summarized um, what I like. You know, there's three kinds of truth. There's your truth, my truth, and the truth. And you summarized my truth really, really well. And one of the things I believe in every day, I, I, I get up and I I'm one of those people that when my phone rings and I don't recognize the phone number, I look forward to answering it because it could be someone who's wanting and seeking help. It's either that or a robocall and I get a chance to look at new phone plans. So This is uh, beautiful. Yeah. So part of, you know, my story is, it's, it's not, you know, that unusual. Most, I, I grew up in a, you know, traditional family here in San Diego, California, one of four kids. And, you know, everything's prodding along. My family had a business. And each one of the kids was involved with it somehow as, as we were young and I worked through it. And, you know, one of the things that happened to me is I got in a situation early in school. I was in second grade and one of my buddies had been skiing with his family and he broke his leg and he was out of school for a couple of weeks. And when he came back, his cast was off and we were getting caught up in the playground and he took his shoe off and he threw it at me. And I picked it back up and I threw it back at him and I ended up hitting the fracture and re-breaking his leg. No, so you did. From that, from that moment forward, my life was changing. I was taken to the principal's office. My folks were called into the principal and, you know, I was reprimanded for inappropriate behavior. And I, you know, we're five years old. It was an accident. We were playing. Yes. Uh, his family was there. He's back in the hospital getting his leg reset. So, you know, that's kind of where, you know, it, it was a tipping point for me. I was in a very large classroom in the public school and it was, 
they wanted to have me tested because they thought something was wrong. And so I went and had the, the, uh, that special test they give kids, uh, whatever that means, to see if they were ADHD or had behavioral problems. And I remember being examined by a psychologist and they had these stumbling some of these blocks that you had to kind of sort up and stack up and put in an order. And I got frustrated. So I picked them up and just threw them at the psychologist. So pretty much I was labeled at that point as a knucklehead and a troublemaker. So fast forwarding, I was moved to a private school, you know, smaller classes. And then um, in, in fifth grade, I had a teacher who I didn't care for much at all. And um, I got a few of my buddies in the back of the room. We took these little straight pins, bent them over on a rubber band and shot them at the face of the clock whenever the teacher had his back to us. Uh -huh. So this one day I got them all together because we were really upset with the teacher. We fired all these little straight pins off and then I left the class and next class I'm in, here comes the principal, you know, and the vice principal and there were law enforcement there and they came and got me and said, you know, please follow us. Oh Walk no. Up. Teacher had a heart attack and they said, we believe you're responsible for this. And if something happens and he passes away, you could be charged with involuntary manslaughter. Oh now, my gosh. Age 12, right? So I'm thinking this is, this has got to be, you know, this is this candid camera, you know, is this some sort of TV show? And they yes. were serious. lucky for me, you know, he survived, but you know, so here I am, you know, I'm in fifth grade and things are just escalating for me and things really weren't going the way I, I planned, but of course that was never part of my plan either. And, you know, finished up the junior high school, moved to another school, then I got moved to another school, then I got sent to Arizona for a year to be in a special school and realized, you know, something's wrong with me, I don't get it. And so early on in my teens, I started, uh, you know, picking up alcohol and I found that it really, you know, kind of anesthetized me, it made me feel good. I was self-medicating at a young age and I can remember getting on my bike, my Stingray, uh, you know, grew up in a fashion business. I, I could put on a white shirt and a tie and I could look older. So I'd take my bike, go up to 7-Eleven and buy some liquor. Because <laughs> you know, so, I didn't want to wait in line like everybody else did at the fraternity house to wait in line for beer. So I started drinking, you know, my favorite was Southern Comfort. And uh, coincidentally, the little half pints used to fit in the back pocket of a 501, uh, you know, blue jeans, Levi's. So it was, it was, it was kind of how I started drinking. It was very comfortable. And every time I, I, I drank, I felt numb. And when I felt numb, I felt good. And that's kind of how things progressed. And then going through high school, escalated to other things, marijuana. And you know, you asked me to tell you my story and I'm kind of using this part of it because you know, this, this particular month of 2019 is uh, National Recovery Month. So there's been a lot of focus on recovery and discussing recovery and access to treatment and all the different things that are going on in the world, what I'm sure we'll talk more about. But yes. so, for me, you know, my trajectory was, you know, continued on and I just simply progressed and got involved with methamphetamine and got involved with cocaine and then mixing hallucinogens. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail. And so fast forwarding, um, things kind of continued to get a little worse, although I was still working, uh, still functioning. And I wanted to find ways to, you know, get through my days so I could get you know, self-medicated. That went on through my 20s. And then I uh, crashed and burned in a very horrible way. And, and it was a week in uh, New York on business. And then that Friday morning, the last day of the trip, I'd been in blackouts all week and things were just horrible. And I realized that I'm going to have to explain to everybody what just happened just last week because I'd been with 14 other coworkers and I was lost and they couldn't find me. And I was in blackouts. And I actually, the last night I was in New York, I, I literally passed out across the train station and I was picked up by New York's finest. And coincidentally, I used to carry a badge for work 
and I had a hotel key, so they thought I was there for the undercover uh, conference that was going on with law across the country because my badge was gold and silver, and I had a hotel key, so they basically took me back to the hotel rather than arresting me and putting me in jail. But that's that classic alcoholic, found in the gutter situation, and I realized that I'm going to have to explain this to everybody. And that morning, um, I met the team at the office because I was late, and I had decided that I can no longer continue on this path and didn't want to explain to them and my wife again why I'd screwed up. So mm-hmm. I remember sitting in this guy's office and he, uh, I said, can I use your phone? He says, sure, go ahead. So I went in the office, closed the door. The window was open to the 44th floor, you know, one of those tall buildings in Manhattan. And I was sitting on the ledge and I realized just trying to catch my breath that all I had to do is close my eyes and I could lean back I'd hit the ground in a few seconds and everything would be over and I wouldn't explain my behavior ever again. So I kind of nudged up on the ledge. I put my head actually outside of the window and I was ready to lift my leg up. And this guy walks in the office. He goes, what are you doing, man? You're going to fall out the window. I said, I'm just getting some air. I'll be okay. So he goes, okay, come on when you're ready. The meeting started. We've got your coffee out here. I said, great. So he closed the door and I remember this thought went through my head because my mom had told me this once or twice maybe as a kid because I, and I think a lot of kids think about this, you know, I'll just take my own life, I'll kill myself. And I remember she told me once, she says, you know, suicide is very selfish. And that's what went through my head at that moment. And that guy, you know, doing <clears throat> the, the kind of the divine intervention and I decided to not jump out the window that day. Uh-huh. I got, I'd shut that phone off real quick. Give me one sec. So I decided that moment I'm going to make a phone call, called my wife and said, okay, I'm ready. I flew home that night, disclosed everything to my family. And that Saturday morning, I went into treatment and that was back in November of 1984. It was the 10th uh, and I went into treatment. And I, my sobriety date is November 13th. And I, this, this November, I'll be celebrating, if all goes well, uh, 35 years of continuous sobriety. And wow. I really felt like I got a real second chance that day. And I've done everything I can since that moment to do everything possible to be of service to others and have done it as a volunteer for decades. And now I'm doing it professionally and personally and volunteering. And you know, that's kind of how I got here with you is to be able to share some of that story, uh, my experience, strength, and hope, and uh, now have a treatment center that I run. I'm also a crisis coach and a family navigator. And each day I wake up, like I said earlier, to try to help somebody, help their family member, their loved one, get to the highest and best level of care and support they possibly can. This is a phenomenal story, and what you are doing is also phenomenal. This is very important life work. And oftentimes we don't realize how important it is for us to help others. And oftentimes we don't understand that our life experience has placed us in a position to be equipped to do that. Agree. So with everything that you're doing, you also have a book. I do. Can you share with us a little bit about that too? Yeah, the, the book, you know, it came out in 2008 originally, and then I uh, had it re-edited and actually spell-checked in 2011. It was <laughs> self-published. Uh, the book's called Tell Me No, I Dare You. 
Um, and it's, it's part of my journey and part of the journey of the people that I used to serve. I, I ran a nonprofit for about 18 years working with people coming out of jail and prison. And I really wanted to document my experience working with others and, and how that, you know, affected my personal life. And you know, one of the stories you and I were talking about earlier is how people, you know, when they hear you in their world talking about things that are going on, they always question, well, how do you know you haven't, you know, you haven't been there, you haven't done that. And one of my favorite stories is sitting in the classroom working with uh, individuals coming out of long-term incarceration uh, because I never really uh, was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I'd always get into discussion every month. We'd have a new group. There'd always be somebody, you know, one of those tough guys that wanted to just, you know, say, you know, Scott, you don't know anything about my world. And we'd, <clears throat> we'd always go into this conversation. It was, a, I always thought of as a teaching moment for the class. Like, okay, bring it. Let's talk about it. He said, you know, I understand according to your staff, you've never been to prison. And I said, that's true. And he would say, well, how could you possibly be able to help us? I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come up here to the front of the class <clears throat> when we had an average size class of 40 people. And I said, let's talk about it, you and I, and let's share with the group what the outcome might look like. I said, let me tell you the difference between you and I. And you could hear in their face and their expression, their body language, oh, here it comes. Uh-oh, yeah. Here, it comes, here comes the judgment. I said, the difference between you and I, my friend, I'm going to use the example of a guy named Mike. I said, Mike, the difference between you and I, you think the difference is you've done time and I haven't. Let me tell you what the real difference is between you and I. He goes, what? I said, the difference is you got caught. That's all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you got caught and I didn't. You know, one of my favorite bylines is um, I, I'm a retired, unlicensed pharmacist. So I had my own production and my own distribution. So I get it. I mean, I was a substance abuser, a poly drug user, an alcoholic. And somebody who you know had co-occurring issues tried to take my own life, so I, I understand a lot of the issues that families face, and I was that black sheep in my family. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I try to teach when I work with families is, look, I may not have walked you know in your shoes, but there's somebody in your family that I'm sure I have a lot in common with, and what, if that's usually the one we're talking about, I'm pretty confident that I can help steer them, create options and opportunities. Talk about a path that maybe we can walk on. And guess what? If I can't do that, I'll find someone who can. See, this is important because I'm going to ask something and you can tell me because I think that this is the case and you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I will. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So with challenges that we have in life, oftentimes we hide them. We don't want family members to know. We don't want people in the public to know what's going on with us. And this affects our sense of trust. Mm -hmm. And until we are able to start trusting someone that will support us to get in the right direction, have the tools and resources, it's really, really difficult to start sort of the recovery process on your own. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to make sure that I'm on board with this because I think it's critical that we understand why our behavior is what it is sometimes. Why am I not doing this? If I haven't recognized this, then I kind of need to be in a position where I am so then I can tackle that and say, okay, I need to at least trust someone. And if I can't trust my family members, I need to go to a trusted source. Who is that trusted source that can help me get where I need to go without judgment? 
Well, if I understand your question right, let, let me respond this way. A couple of things. First of all, I believe the uh, addiction issue is a disease. Mm -hmm. And if we liken the disease of addiction, that's anywhere from, you know, internet, vaping today, alcohol, mm -hmm. mood altering substances, prescription medication. If you suffer and you're part of the 15% science says that's predisposed to have uh, the uh, disease of addiction, just like you know, the disease of diabetes. If we were talking about diabetes, there is no question. Some people have it, some people don't. And once you get it uh, assessed and treated, there's a, there's just a solution that you can pretty much live a normal life. And I believe that same thing holds true with the disease of addiction, whether it's internet, gambling, sex, food, whatever. Mm -hmm. you know, once it's diagnosed and once it gets treated and once you practice the principles of whatever it takes to stay involved with recovery, you can live a normal life. But here's the, interesting, here's the interesting part about the disease of addiction. First of all, it's a disease of denial. So the person who has it doesn't believe they have it. Okay. It's, also, it's also a disease of the inability to feel feelings. So the one question I get from families all the time is, how do I know if my loved one is telling me the truth? Mm -hmm. And my attitude is, if their lips are moving, they're not telling the truth. The reason for that is, Nobody I've ever met, and I just got on Medicare, which means I'm 65 now. Uh-oh. The good news is my copay is really small. So when I go to the doctor, but I've never met anybody who, as a child, looked up at their parents and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'd like to get under the influence of something mood-altering as quickly as possible. Could you help me with that trajectory so I can basically lie, cheat, manipulate my whole life through and make yours miserable while doing it. So, and mine too, and my life too. Well, you know, according to science, 15% 15 of us have this disease, and of those who are actively untreated, moving around the community, meaning their addiction's not being treated or not being arrested or not under any kind of treatment, the impact they're gonna have daily is on seven more people negatively. So if you think about that, if 15% of us have this addiction, wow. and we're going to impact 70% more of the community, that's 85% of our country right now that will be impacted by the addict or the alcoholic or the individual who's self-medicating, who's not being treated effectively. And that, by the way, ties into co-occurring issues, mental health, depression, anxiety, there's all kinds of lists around it. So to your question, the person who's under the influence, the person who's self-medicated, the person who has the problem, isn't generally capable because there's something about their brain that is contaminated by the addiction, by the disease, by the behavior that's untreated. They're not gonna tell themselves, I think I have a problem. It usually is someone close to them who's pointing out that behavior. Well, that's really interesting you say that. And one of the things that came to mind while you were sharing this was that often we think my choice isn't affecting anybody else but me. And now you're saying 70%. Correct. That is so unbelievable of a number. And it's also something to really have someone think on that you realize your behavior does affect more people than you have any idea that it affects. And when that information is shared, it, it's gotta be 
teed up in a way where the individual you're telling it to really not only is just receptive to it, but understands the meaning behind your delivery and why you're sharing it now. Meaning when people call me and say, you know, they're drunk, what do I do? I said, let them sleep. Don't try to explain to somebody who's under the influence what they need to do differently with their life. Just recently sitting with a family going, you know, this kid took it to the wall. You know, they need to get a job. They've got to go back to school. And I keep telling them and they're not doing it. So I ask the question, if you're doing what you're doing and it doesn't seem to be working, what do you think about trying something else? Yes. Like, it's really, that's you know, another interesting point because yep. we're gonna, without any changes in our own choices or behavior, we're going to get the same result by doing the same things that we've done, despite the fact we say, well, I want to change this. Right. Unless you take action, there is no change. And, 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 from the, and from the inside looking out versus the outside looking in, depending upon which side of the conversation you're on, the average uh, family member or close friend or significant other or sibling has watched this behavior for years and they're so frustrated. And I know because of my crisis coaching, I've seen families go, you know, we understand you can help fix this. And I said, well, first of all, I don't know what this is yet. Let's talk more about it. Secondly, yes. and when I ask a couple of key questions, like how long has this behavior been going on? How long have you noticed this? Have you seen a change? When would the shift come? Was there something catastrophic that took place? So once they get a better understanding that this is not just something that happened a week ago, they, they have to also buy into the process that, look, it's going to take weeks, months, maybe years to mm -hmm. shift this paradigm. Example, you spend a big part of your adult life eating what you think is the appropriate way to intake food and exercising. But as you get older, you find, you know, your waist is two inches bigger and your clothes are fitting tighter and you're looking around going, how did this happen? Well, it just happened. So let's deal with it. But you're not going to change by not eating lunch the next day or a week or two of not eating a meal. It's going to require some lifestyle changes. It's going to require some modification of your routines. So it, it can be that simple. The problem is it just takes time. But right. when you, when you see how long it took you to get there, you realize it's going to take probably the same amount of time to really affect a systemic change that's really going to stick. That's, that's really profound. And someone's probably going to have to replay this a couple of times to grasp what you just said. One of the things I want to ask you is when you're working with families and they're directing your attention to the individual, do you end up also talking to family members about enabling or being enablers? One of the things that I love most about this family navigation concept that I've you know, personally created and working with the whole family, because I'm not a clinician, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical expert. I'm just a guy who's you know, spent the last 35 years bumping my head, making mistakes. You know, I love that yeah. saying, you know, fail frequently so you can succeed sooner. And I've learned anecdotally and experientially from families, you know, pretty much what works and more importantly, what doesn't. And I try to share both sides of that if they're open to it. And when it comes to the family, you know, because according to science, you know, it's a family disease. And if the addict or alcoholic or the person who's got the issue has been living with family members, they're impacted by it because they, a couple things have happened. They've either tried to shut it down their way and it hasn't worked, or they've turned the other way because they don't know how to deal with it, or they've tried to find ways to fix it and it doesn't work and it gets worse, or right. 
they just become a victim in their own home and they suffer from PTS because they have been traumatized by the impact of what's happening with the addict. That's a good so point. at the end of the day, it is a family disease and the family really needs to be treated. And some of the science shows that the average person who goes to a 28-day treatment program inpatient who does nothing afterwards has a 95% chance of relapsing. A 95% chance huge. of relapsing. No other industry, if you think about it, could survive with a 95% failure rate. And I call it a failure rate because it's not, a, it's not necessarily a success or a failure. It's something, it's a dynamic that takes place. Meaning, if you're a diabetic and you're taking insulin and you stop taking insulin, there's going to be a consequence. If you're a triathlete and you don't work out for a month before a big competition, competition, there's going to be an outcome that you're not going to be satisfied with. And it happens mm -hmm. with anything. It's like cooking. If you don't have a recipe and you don't have a recipe you can follow and you don't know what the ingredients are, the outcome of your work is going to come out in a way where you're going to look at it and go, something's not right here. That's mm -hmm. why it has to be a plan. That's why recovery is a long-term commitment. And I don't, you know, a lot of people, well, you know, I don't want to this. I don't want to go to that. It doesn't matter what you pick. Just don't do the picking by yourself, meaning seek outside help, talk with other people, talk with clinical experts, talk with psychologists, talk with your doctor, talk with your faith-based leader, talk to a coach, talk to a family member who's been through it before or other people who have, meaning don't try to do this alone. You know, you and I talked earlier, it's like trying to change a flat tire while the car's going 60 miles an hour. Nobody can do that on their own. And as a parent, if you're listening to this, just because your child is your child and you've loved them the way you've loved them, hopefully their whole life, doesn't mean you can fix this. You really need to seek help. You've got to ask for help. You've got to get people involved. You'd do it if they had bronchitis. You'd do it if they had pneumonia. You'd do it if they broke an arm. Yeah. It's interesting. This disease of addiction, it used to be back in the day that if you weren't at your bottom, you weren't going to be willing, based on other people's perception, to really get and accept right. help. So when you think about it, the 15% we talked about that have the issue around addiction, of those, only 10% will seek help. So think about that. Okay. 90% of the folks who suffer from it will not seek help initially or even soon after it's been identified or they look around and take an inventory of their life or they've lost a job or they've been arrested or they lost their license to drive or they've hurt a family member or family members have left their life because of their behavior. So this is a phenomenon that science still hasn't been able to figure out exactly where it comes from. But we do know this, there are tons of resources out there and, and there are tons of paths for recovery and anonymous programs that people can put their arms around and find help and find hope. So I'm wondering based on the statistics that you've provided and talking about family and the choices on how to react to this, is it possible since this can be basically a family disease hereditary that there aren't other members that are suffering from the addiction of drama and allowing this behavior to, to, to continue because of that type of an addiction? Well, is your, is your question, is it a family disease? Is that what you were saying? I'm sorry, say no, that again. But maybe a member of the family is addicted to drama, like just negative things going on all the time. And so they're creating or allowing things to just 
further develop that shouldn't be there. They're toxic. They're unhealthy. If I understand your question, I would say that yes, in a, in a relationship, for example, my wife and I, she, she was a normie. She did not <clears throat> participate in mood altering substances. And when she did, she passed out. So I stopped sharing my stuff with her. <laughs> yes. That now, was and smart. In any normal relationship, you know, you're going to have your ups and your downs and your pluses and your minus and your good days and your bad days and sad days and happy days. So what happens is, is when someone gets on this trajectory for change or someone understands that something's going on, for example, family member gets diagnosed with something catastrophic. The family usually, they care, rallies around, does, does research, gets information, becomes educated, and finds out how they can participate in the journey they're about to embark on. And there's a lot of information out there. So to your point, if you have a family member and you don't know, because one of the questions I hear all the time, why would they need to do that? I'm not sure they get a choice. And I'm sure if you sat down and asked them, going back to the earlier example, nobody wakes up one day and says, hey, I wonder how I can take mood-altering substances into my body every day and really screw up my life and mess up everyone around me who cares about me and find ways to just continue to hit the wall because it's exciting. Never met anybody like that. So we know that this disease, once again, you, I love comparing it to diabetes because it's very similar. Some people have it, some people don't, but there is treatment, there is hope, and there is help. But the whole family has to get involved with the journey because if they don't understand their role, there are some studies that show that 75% of the reason that people actually relapse is because of family members, the person who might be enabling them. For example, kid goes to treatment. I, and I know many of them, three, three months, six months, they come out, you know, and they're just like on cloud nine. Everything has been unbelievable. They're in a secure environment, no decision anxiety, all structured mealtime, classroom, education, processing, clinical support, therapeutic support, psychological evaluations, medical support. And then you're in this social environment where everyone's doing the same thing you are. And that's hopefully to move in a direction with positive outcomes. You leave that environment. You go right back to the environment you were in when you went. Guess what? Nothing else has changed. Only you have. So part of the reentry, if you will, after treatment, if the family is going to be welcoming you back home, is for the family to get the tools that they need so they can support it. And that's really very important and very wonderful that you are doing what you're doing, that you have created a model and it is working and it is effective. Let me ask you, if someone wants to make changes and they want to contact you and get the assistance they need on any level, how can they get a copy of your book? How can they get in contact with you? What can they do to start making the changes that they need through your expertise? Well, that, and that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to give you my phone number. It's area code 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738 and you can reach me at uh, on my website yourcrisiscoach.com yourcrisiscoach.com or just google me scott h silverman s-i-l-v-e-r-m-a-n keep in mind i am in san diego so and they only say that because um if you're calling me from florida keep in mind of the different time changes and the good news about my coaching work is 80% of it's done by phone. So we can do a lot of different things by phone. We can do it through Zoom, just like we're, you're seeing us today. And what I want to be is a resource for your family. 
And, you know, you may say, well, you know, you don't live here in Wisconsin or Chicago or Boston or Miami or New York. No, I don't. But you do. And I'll help you navigate where you go next with your questions and how to, you know, get online if need be to ask the questions and where to go for resources. <clears throat> and of course, if you have insurance on the back of your insurance card, you call that 800 number and say, I have a family member who's suffering from uh, opioid addiction through prescription medication and things are deteriorating. What do I do? That's a resource. So, and I want to be a resource as well. And, you know, one of the things that I do that I'm very proud of is I give my phone number out because I want to drink from a fire hose, meaning I want to be overwhelmed with families who are calling going, what do I do? And from that question, we'll start the conversation. And, you know, I'm happy to give anybody who calls me a 10 minute free coaching call, you know, and I charge by the hour and you'll see that on my, on my website, but will you call me? I'll give you 10 minutes, be my gift to you because if I can help, you know, I'm, I'm on this campaign now. I call it funeral avoidance. I mean, so many people right now in our country, you know, 240 a day are dying behind prescription opioids and street heroin. Mm -hmm. And fentanyl is getting worse every day. Alcohol is on, continually on the rise. Methamphetamine's worse than it's ever been. Yes. We have synthetic, synthetic counterfeit medication that kids are taking right now, thinking they're taking Xanax that's actually cut with fentanyl, they're overdosing and they're dying. And we have to stop this. We see people in the hospital now nationally because of vaping. So there's a whole list of things, but if you have a situation or you're not sure what to do, you call me, 619-993-2738, and we will figure out what we need to do next. Thank you so much for everything that you do, your focus, your focus on helping others and getting the direction of their life moved very positively, not for just themselves, but their entire family. This is something that is much needed and I'm really excited about the impact that you're making. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you all for watching another episode of Rebecca Sounds Reveille. I really encourage you. I know that either you someone you know in your family or someone you know at work or suspect at work or amongst your friends happens to be in a situation where they can use assistance like what Scott provides. Please make sure that you share this with your friends, your family, your loved ones. The ripple effect is 70%. So all of us 85% are affected in one way or another by someone who is having these types of situations in their lives. Please make sure to help. We want to make a huge change in our communities and across the nation and globally. Thanks for tuning in. Scott H. Silverman, your crisis coach.